Welcome to the Strategic Investor. Join us as we interview some of the world's most productive asset managers and uncover sophisticated and unique investment strategies in the markets. Here is your host, Charlie Wright. Hello and welcome to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio, where we bring you investment strategies you are not hearing elsewhere. We'd like to welcome as our special guest with a special program here today, Danielle Martino, DiMartino Booth, author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. So Danielle is in Dallas, and Danielle, welcome to Strategic Investor Radio. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. So, Danielle wants you to know this is a different kind of podcast for us, a different kind of interview. Usually we're talking to asset managers. But uh, six months ago, when your, first, when your book first came out, it was recommended to me by Steve Blumenthal of CMG. And I, I ordered it that day, got it very soon thereafter. And for the next day or two, that's about all I did. I was absolutely mesmerized by this book, absolutely fascinating, and I've shared its thoughts with many, many people, and uh, they always look at me like, are you sure that stuff goes on at the Fed? And I point to your book and say, hey, she worked there for nine years, so this is going to be a different kind of interview for us, so thank you very much for joining us. So, Danielle, after an MBA from University of Texas, you went to Wall Street, you worked for DLJ and Credit Suisse, both both at the top of the food chain there uh, for six years. You got a master's degree at that time, also in journalism from Columbia University. Then you moved back to Dallas for personal re- reasons, and you started writing for the Dallas Morning News. And after about six months, you had your own column, and Richard Fisher, the governor of the uh, Dallas Fed, contacted you, said, hey, let's meet. You guys met. He eventually offered you a job very soon after that, and you worked for the Fed for nine years, and then you wrote your book. So give us a brief background of yours and how you came about to do this, will you? Well, it's kind of a circuitous route. Uh, it, it's not every day that a, a girl from, from Texas lands on Wall Street uh, at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette, but I did. Uh, I, I'd been influenced by the beauty of Solomon Brothers and uh, and Bear Stearns, of all things, and Lehman Brothers. These are all firms that are no longer with us, including DLJ. But when I was there, I, I kind of felt the invisible hand of something. And now bearing in mind, I started in 1996. A, a certain Alan Greenspan made a speech that same year about irrational exuberance. So I was on the street during a very interesting time, during the Internet bubble. That being said, I, I knew that... Later in life, after I retired, I wanted to write. So I sent myself to night school at Columbia, where I got my second master's in journalism. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And as you mentioned, I, I, I met, met a man and ended up moving to Dallas, uh, and where I now live with, with four children. And I left Wall Street behind and started writing uh, on a daily basis about the financial markets. And that is how one Richard Fisher discovered me. I was writing scathing things about Alan Greenspan and the housing bubble and the potential for it to ignite systemic risk. And so when he came calling and asked me to come serve at the Fed, I I answered the call. And that's how I ended up being an advisor there for nearly a decade. And I've, uh, I've come out and written a book about how very, very dysfunctional an organization the Federal Reserve is. You know, the for the title of your first three chapters, okay, the titles are Group Stink, 
who would buy that crap and St. Greenspan. So obviously, if somebody missed the message uh, in the title of what you're going to talk about or your view of the Fed, they're going to see it when they look at the, the, the title of the first three chapters. So tell us, what are you telling the reader at the outset of the book? Well, I'm trying to be very, um, I'm trying to be very forthright at the very beginning of the book, A, because that's the only way that anybody's going to keep reading any book. But B, I wanted the reader to experience my level of shock when I entered the Fed. And the only way I thought I could do that was to tell the actual story, was to, to explain how very sterile the environment was, kind of like a library mixed with a hospital, and compare that to the energy and, and dynamism of a trading floor, and how just astonished that I was that the whole world financial system was melting and imploding, but on on the inside, inside the walls of the Federal Reserve, it was as if nothing was going on. And I really wanted to, to grab the reader by the collar and, and help them understand how infuriating and how very frustrating and alarming as an American it was to be inside the Fed at that time. You know, we're going to get involved. We're going to get into that in detail. The two words that you use over and over to describe the Fed, the, the Fed, hubris, myopia. Why do you use those yep. words? Well, the whole idea of hubris is you know, pride goeth before the fall. And to this day, if you listen to Ben Bernanke, he will insist jump up and down on the virtues of the wealth effect, despite the fact that hard economic data show that since quantitative easing was first deployed by the Fed, income inequality has expanded exponentially in this country. And yet, his pride will not allow him to to accept the fact that the very idea of the wealth effect has been debunked. The money didn't trickle down to the masses. It just didn't happen. And the myopia has to do with, you know, when I think of monetary myopia, I think of a horse with blinders on. And one of the most irritating things about presenting and writing briefing documents was how, how widely dismissed real-time data were inside the Fed. If it didn't have a long history, if you couldn't seasonally adjust it, well, then you just disregarded it. Uh, but that kind of myopia, those blinders that central bankers have on are very dangerous because they don't see everything coming at them. You can't drive if you have no peripheral vision, and yet the Fed drives the biggest economy in the world. You know, let's talk here, uh, Danielle, about uh, the people. Okay, and let's start with the organization of the Fed, and then we'll get involved. Uh, we'll talk about about a half a dozen individuals here. But the organization of the Fed as an aggregate group. Uh, you say at one point, you use words to describe them, such as arcane, complex, peculiar, and opaque. Not the people, but, but, but the process and the organization itself. T- tell our listeners about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. There are 12, there are over 750 full-time PhDs at the Fed. There are four, four PhD economists at the Chicago Fed alone dedicated to studying meteorology. I, I kid you not. And it, it, I, I found it to be so convoluted that 
all 12 districts ahead of every federal open market committee prepared an international and a national economic briefing, all of them based on the same data sets. Why that wasn't just a purview of the, the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., befuddled me. It was such an enormous waste of taxpayer money in my mind. The district should be dedicated to analyzing the economies of the districts, which is critically important to making Fed policy. Uh, but the level of, of, of overlap was just stupendous. And, and the way that the data were presented was also just kind of gobbledygookish. All of the calculus that's used, I mean, I've, I've taken many calculus classes in my life. I'm not saying it's not understandable. But so much of the research done at the Fed has absolutely nothing to do with making good decisions about where interest rates should be. It doesn't help policymakers make policy. It helps people who've earned their dissertations continue to defend their dissertations. But again, if they want to do that, stay in academics. Don't work at the central bank. The central bank needs to be filled with pragmatists, with practitioners. And that was my beef. You know, uh, you also talk about the fact that uh, all these PhDs are there at the Fed, but virtually, no, to quote from your, your book, virtually no one I met at the bank had ever worked on Wall Street, managed a business, or even handled their own investments. I can't believe that. <laughs> that's that's you beyond. Know, I, I, I am writing currently about about private defined benefit plans. We're talking about the old Caterpillar, uh-huh. General Motors of the world that still have old-fashioned pension plans. The majority of corporate America has long since moved on to a 401k system. Yeah. And yet, if you retire from the Fed and you, you, you end up being fully vested with a pension for life and health care benefits... And I asked myself, well, now, wait a minute. This is, this is an institution that is quasi-public. If you're a member of the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C., you're actually technically a government employee. Your email address ends with .gov. But if you're one of the district employees, your email address ends in .org. And any excess profits after covering the overhead of, it, of each district are remitted to the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, and then they're therefore thereby remitted to Treasury. So there is a direct link to taxpayers, and I have to ask myself, why does the Fed still have an old-fashioned pension plan? It's not unionized. But again, they are not at the receiving end of zero interest rate policy. They were able to take, Ben Bernanke was able to steer interest rates to the zero bound and again, not be on the receiving end of his own policies because he will have a pension for life. It makes absolutely no sense to me, nor is it to use a word that my children use way too often. It's just not fair. You know, uh, not only that, but but to me, what was one of the most surprising parts of the book, okay, and again, I absolutely loved it when I read it six months ago, and I, I've reviewed it uh, significantly in the past few days in anticipation of this interview, is the fact that in 2008, when the markets were falling apart, so many of these Fed employees didn't even seem to be aware of current events and what was happening. You know, I will never forget seeing 
of very, very senior economists' inbox in the mailroom one day. And this was it really, I mean, the, the world was melting as we knew it. HSBC was blowing up. There was the mortgage implomo, implodometer that was um, being run in your neck of the woods that was tallying on a daily basis subprime lenders that were blowing up. I mean, the world was, this, this was very much happening right before our very eyes. And I'll never forget looking and seeing, you know, probably 10 financial times stacked up in his mailbox. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, and and he was not on vacation. And I'm thinking to myself, this person's 10 days behind in the middle of the greatest financial crisis to descend upon this country since the Great Depression. And it was just, it was one of those moments in time that you, you take a mental snapshot and you're like, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong with this place. Yeah, I, I but find it was it, endemic it, and it was systemic. It was yeah. throughout the entire system. And, you know, another part that was so surprising to me, which I, I guess it shouldn't be surprising because I have worked in government when I was first out of college, I, I, is the lack of contrarian opinion. It is a top-down organization and decision-making process. I'm going to read quickly five quotes that you have in your book from employees in a survey after... The, the, the financial meltdown, somebody came in that you, you talk about, and they were asked to do an analysis of how did this all fall apart? How did this happen? And the Fed was so clueless and unaware. And so they did a survey asking employees, here are five responses, okay, about how they feel about the decision-making process. Quote, grow up in this culture and you learn that small mistakes are not tolerated. Don't want to be too far outside from where management is thinking. No opportunity to earn enough merit from 10 right policy decisions to compensate for one wrong decision. After you get shot down a couple of times, you tend to go, not go there anymore. And then listen to the final one. Until I know what my boss thinks, I don't want to answer this question. <laughs> I mean, tell us, how can it be so full of PhDs and all of this brain power, and they're paid fairly well, and and there's no contrarian thinking or opinions expressed? No. If you look, I will never for the life of me forget when uh, an employee who is no longer with the Fed walked into my office, just read under the collar, infuriated, slammed the door to my office, sat down and said, I just received a poor annual review, to which I answered, why, except for me, you're the second most productive person in the building. What on earth? And the reply was, I'm so productive that I intimidate my superiors. So I was dinged for it. To the, to the employee's credit, they didn't sign it. Refused to sign the annual review overly productive intimidating your superiors you're working too hard i I was just completely blown away you know danielle this would be funny if it were some water district somewhere okay or a school district even okay but the fed the most you know Today, they're going to make an announcement. Wall Street sits on the, and you know better than we do, they sit on their hands, okay, waiting for the announcement on the FOMC meeting, okay? The Fed runs the world more than Congress or any place else, and this is the environment they have? 
It's mind-blowing. It, it's, it, it's, it, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling. When you, and it, it, there's, abs, there's no coincidence that in 1996, the Federal Open Market Committee meetings began to be transcribed. And it just so happens that since 1996, the Federal Reserve Board governors, those who sit around the table and have a permanent vote, there have been exactly two dissents since then. Two dissents. This is, it's, it's, it's hard to even believe. But after 1996, when they knew that all of their words were going on the record, even though they're released with a five-year lag, there was still this intimidation factor, well, we'd better all get along. Well, guess what? That's, that's how really big mistakes happen, is when everybody gets along and if one person in the corner is like, uh, excuse me, I smell smoke, and doesn't say anything, then all of a sudden you turn around and the entire building is burned down. You know, you know, Daniel, this is fascinating. We we need to move on here. Let's cover some individuals. And uh, we're going to skip a few from uh, what we would like to to talk about all of them, but we really can't. Let's start with Janet Yellen. Now, two words that you use to describe her. I quote, astonishingly clueless. Now, If I were to tell someone that, or if I were just to look at your book and see that particular sentence, I would think that's hyperbola. But what you have done is you have set that up with many quotes of her that were not just wrong. They were 180 degrees off. And you would give a quote where she said something that was completely wrong. And it's not that you did that one or two times. It's done over and over and over. So... Hundred pages of end notes to back everything yeah. up, right? Yeah, the yeah. It's their words, not mine. Yeah, that, that's right. And you you quote them, and their timing is it, it, it's it's unbelievable. And yet we don't hear about the Wall Street Journal doesn't usually tell us that. I mean, the editorial section criticizes her. Yeah, but but in the reporting section, so so very briefly, Jenny Yellen. Sure. You know, it, you, you can look back at old congressional testimonies, and if. If the whole idea of banking regulation or the markets comes up, you can almost see her eyes roll into the back of her head. She's not interested. She is a she is a trained labor economist who is driven to try and bring individual employees off the sidelines back into the labor force, come what may. She's she's spoken so many times now that the world is so much safer since the financial crisis. But has she ever stopped to realize that there's over $100 trillion of debt that has been piled on since 2007? It's, uh, it's just unfathomable. And yet, she is convinced that just because the world hasn't blown up, that financial stability is somehow secure on her watch. It is it is just unbelievable. You you talk to people in commercial real estate. You talk to people who are involved in the equities market, in credit markets, and they'll tell you, I've never seen an environment like this. I wasn't alive in 1929. I can't really remember 1999, 2007 didn't feel like this. If you're speaking to them off the record, they will tell you that something is not right on Wall Street right now. Now, and to her, everything is hunky-dory. 
Yeah. Now, let's talk about two people that I had not heard of in, in your book. Okay. One is this gentleman, uh, Raghuran Rahan. Is that his, how you pronounce it? Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, yes, se- several years ago at the Jackson Hole Gathering, boy, did he ruffle some feathers. <laughs> and, and, and he came out and said things that, uh, you know, everybody was, was denying at the time. And he told them that they, they were going to have big problems. And now, did they ignore him? Did they reject him? Did they, well, how did they deal with what he said? Oh, he was roundly criticized. He was publicly called out for the comments that he made, for the prescient comments that he made that happened to be spot on and perfectly predictive of what was to come. And this was, I think, 2005, right? Yeah, this was at the Jackson Hole gathering in 2005 that was supposed to celebrate Greenspan's career. And he dared say that the man has made the world that much more unstable for us and his peers took him down for it i'd shake his hand of course i'd buy him a beer of course yeah yeah you would and and so that 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 was an opportunity that they had to evaluate things and they, they just passed on it exactly yeah look can you imagine what the world would be like today for baby boomers If when Greenspan in December 1996 recognized that the markets were irrationally exuberant and had imposed macro prudential regulatory relief and raised margin requirements, I'm not saying a whole bunch, but just just raise the margin requirements. If you think think the stock market is overvalued, it is under your regulatory purview to increase margin requirements. We would have never had the 2000 blow off that we did. And yet he sat back and watched it get bigger and bigger and bigger until it burst. Yeah, and then there was the Brooksley Bourne thing, which we're not going to take time with. It's not covered much in your book. But, but in the, so briefly, who was this Mr. Uh, Raguron Rajan? What, what was his position? Remind us. Um, he was, you know what, I, you've stumped me. I cannot remember, and, and I don't have that up in my hand. Okay, and what, what, was, the, uh, what was the topic? Uh, the, the topic was... was uh, the, the financial markets, the credit systems of the world, and how much more dangerous and interlinked they had become on Greenspan's watch. I see. Okay. Now, there's a second gentleman here, Zoltan Pozar. Zoltan Pozar. Zoltan Zoltan, my hero. Another non-PhD in economics who was kind of the Russell Crowe character in A Beautiful Mind. He had the ability to draw the lines, make the connections between all of the different parts of the financial system, both on and off balance sheet, both in the shadows and in the conventional banking system. He actually drew a map that took up my entire office wall. It was so big that showed the warehouses where Merrill Lynch, where the Merrill Lynch's and countrywide of the world would house their mortgages before they were carted off into into um, into derivatives. He mapped it all out and was able to show that at the very epicenter of the global financial system, the repo market was putting it at risk. And guess what happened? And what took down Bear Stearns? So he, he was able to identify the, the fractures in the system. And for doing so, he was also criticized. And what eventually well, happened to him? He eventually left. Um, his superiors at the Fed uh, ordered him to give him uh, to give them 
his data and methodologies and to no longer write about it, but they would write about it. They were going to take credit for it. Um, and he refused and left. Yeah, you know this. And I've already, well, I've already bought him a beer. He's a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay, so uh, one question here, um, <clears throat> Danielle. When I've talked to people about your your book, and, and I had the same thought, the same question, typically people's response is, yes, we have these problems with pensions, which we haven't talked about, but you certainly do in your book, about they're underfunded and that uh, you know uh, retired people can't save money, they have to invest, and that we created bubbles in various asset markets, etc. Okay, but all of this low interest rate, which you've been critical of, all of these low interest rates, they have created jobs. And they, they've, they've gone into construction. Uh, companies have bought things. Companies have borrowed money. They spent that money, and money's gone into the economy. They've created jobs, created taxes, and things would be worse if interest rates had been higher and people and, uh, had not borrowed all that money. And the Fed should be given would credit be, for that. Would they really be worse? I mean, I'm not trying to be rhetorical, but had the companies gone out of business that were rescued by QE2, by the second iteration of quantitative easing, had the clear channel communications gone out of business, that clear channel is now iHeart Communications. It is the number one most apt to default on its $16 billion worth of debt. Again, had the walking wounded of the world gone out of business, we would have a higher level of productivity today and a cleaner slate than what we had. Had interest rates not remained so low for so long that the walking wounded had stayed in the system. We have overcapacity in so many industries in this country, which we know has dragged down productivity because they've been able to stay on life support through the junk bond market. And it's true that companies have borrowed a lot of money. Companies have borrowed more money than they ever have in the history of mankind in this country. Corporate leverage is higher than it's ever been. So I'll I'll give people that. But the broad majority of that money has been poured right back into shareholder returns as opposed to investing, long-term investing in the future. And those same low interest rates have crippled the pension system and, and completely punished savers. So... And the jobs that have been created have been very eat, drink, and get sick sectors. Very low-paying jobs. You know, that that's a great response, uh, Danielle. Thank you very much. So, moving forward. Okay, we thought for a while, when you wrote your book, it, it, uh, it talked about negative interest rates. We don't hear so much today about negative interest rates. Uh, you talk about, we've got the person who got us into this mess, or part of the, the group that got us into this mess, Janet w- Yellen, supposedly trying to get us out of this abyss. What would you recommend, and what do you recommend for moving forward? Well, I think that we've seen enough in the, in the way of the most recent batch of housing data suggests uh, that housing has peaked and rolled over. We know for a fact that the automobile industry is uh, is in an outright recession. That's just pure data. It's actually actually Federal Reserve data. Uh, we know that the, the energy industry has become much, much more efficient, so you don't need as many employees to pull that oil out of the ground. Uh, so there are enough signposts to suggest that the only thing that has yet to give is the number of jobs, not quality, being created. There are enough things that tell us that this economy is in the last gasps of this recovery. 
to suggest that the Fed should not be hiking rates anymore. They missed their opportunity. And my greatest fear is that the next true step that we'll see out of the Fed in 2018 is going to be lowering interest rates, which I would, I, I would, I would hope that they would not lower interest rates ever again from where they are. I think that the floor itself needs to be higher. At least 2% should be the absolute lowest that interest rates should be because last I checked, we're a capitalist society that runs a banking system and we need to have curve in the yield curve and never again go go, go to the zero bound. And uh, tell us a little bit about, and, and, and we need to make it quick here, that the Fed needs to have a single instead of a dual mandate. Well, I think that financial instability has been fomented time and again because of the second labor market mandate. I think the Fed should be taken down to just a single mandate of maximizing the buying power of the dollar in your wallet and that the the employment mandate needs to go back into the hands of the private sector and in times of duress and recession in the hands of the fiscal authorities in Congress. And that's it. I think they should go, go back to one mandate and only one mandate, and I think that that would help curve the mission creep that has infected the institution of the Federal Reserve. Danielle, I would not want to take uh, the opposite opposite position of you and have to have to debate you here. So uh, <laughs> we need to move on a little bit. Tell us about your economic consulting firm, Money Strong. Uh, Money Strong uh, is a, a firm that I founded pretty much the day after I left the Fed. I, I left the Fed on June twelfth. I, I published uh, June fifteenth of two thousand fifteen, and I premiered on CNBC June seventeenth. So I, I, I got busy very quickly. I write a weekly newsletter that delves into some of the same subjects that are covered in the book. Um, and, and they can range from anything from, from the pensions we've just discussed to private equity to the high-yield bond market. You name it, I write about it on a weekly basis. And then I'm a full-time Bloomberg columnist as well. I'm, I'm one of their newest hires, and I write a weekly column for, for Bloomberg. And you can catch me all over social media as well, um, at Martino Booth. My Twitter feed is never a boring place to be. I'm sure it isn't. So give us your website. Absolutely. It's demartinobooth.com. Same as my Twitter handle. I'm easy to find. Uh, There's a full archive of of some of my most recent writings um, up on the the website as well as access to my YouTube channel. And uh, final words for our listeners here, uh, Danielle, what are you teaching your children about finances? We are teaching our children the beauty of compounded interest by having an in-home bank so that they understand the virtues of saving, something that's been lost on an entire generation. And we are hammering home that it is the return of your money, not the return on your money, that is the most important thing to ensure you'll, you'll have financial stability and security in your retirement years. And uh, one final one, I, uh, I've got to ask you, uh, what do you see happening over the next five years? What concerns you and what are you excited, uh, pleased about? Well, I'm pleased that there is a renewed shift towards vocational education in this country. I think one of the reasons the German economy has been as strong as it's been is that there was never a stigma attached to vocational learning. I think the skills gap that we have in the employment uh market right now would not be as acute as it is if we'd had more vocational training. So I'm very enthused by that. And I I do worry about the $220 trillion of debt out there. Uh, it's too much. 
I, I, we don't necessarily know what it all looks like. We don't know what that black box of Chinese debt could potentially do in terms of infecting the financial system and contagion. And we don't know what the effect of the $25 trillion or so that's built up on central bank balance sheets is going to be either, whether there, there'll ever be an opportunity to truly exit and make our way back to normality. And that's really what we need. We need to be a markets-based society where price discovery occurs in a natural way based on buyers and sellers and supply and demand, and we'd be that much better off for it. Danielle, I could go on all day. Unfortunately, we've got a time limit here. We want to thank you very much for taking uh, your time today with your your four kids in tow here, uh, speaking from Dallas and sharing uh, some of your thoughts. And I can highly recommend your book. Again, that is Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle Martino Booth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me today. So you've been listening to Strategic Investor Radio on OC Talk Radio. We'd love to hear your comments. Contact us at info at strategicinvestorradio.com. Go to our website to hear podcasts of all of our interviews and shows, strategicinvestorradio.com. This is Charlie Wright wishing you an enjoyable week and productive investing. Strategic Investor Radio is a production of OC Talk Radio and is provided for educational purposes only. Content of this program and the views of the guests should not be considered as recommendations by OC Talk Radio or investment advice from the host, Charlie Wright, or any other entity attached to this production. Investors should always consult qualified financial, investment, tax, or legal professionals prior to investing. 